KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, stories from the early days of HIV and AIDS. That's the focus of a new podcast called Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows. It's about how the epidemic decimated poor communities of color and about the people who refuse to stay out of sight. WNYC's Kai Wright and the nation's Lizzie Ratner will explain. Also, the blue blood families that made fortunes in the opium trade. Amitav Ghosh will trace the origins of much of the wealth of the 19th century New England elite. His new book is called Smoke and Ashes. But first, it's time to talk about politics in Florida, where an abortion rights amendment has gotten enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot. For that story, we turn to Amy Littlefield. She's the nation's abortion access correspondent and a journalist who focuses on reproductive rights, healthcare, and religion. Amy Littlefield, welcome back. Hi, John. It's great to be back with you. You say Florida is going to be the most important state to watch in the 2024 election. I have a lot of political friends who disagree with that, who say Florida <laughs> has become a red state. Let's face it. Trump won the state in 2016 and 2020. The legislature has a Republican supermajority. Nevertheless, you think Florida is still a battleground state. Why is that? I know I'm fighting an uphill battle here, John, to convince people that Florida is in play. Okay. Uh, and let's not forget that the governor, Ron DeSantis, recently considered a uh, presidential contender, you know, is a man who likes to send asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard, you know, as a fun hobby on the side. But it's time to start taking Florida seriously. And one of the reasons, John, is that Florida has to be important because it is the last bastion of abortion access in the Southeast. The South is basically a funnel of states where abortion is banned that are all directing patients into Florida. And I have to say, you know, I've got my abortion goggles on. I will admit that. That is how I look at everything. Okay. okay. Um, but, but you know what? Flo abortion has the power to do things at the ballot box that people assume are impossible. And we have seen that with Michigan, you know, where an abortion rights ballot measure helped Democrats get trifecta control of the state government for the first time in years. We saw that in 2022 in Kentucky, a state that has among the highest percentages of anti-abortion residents in the country, where voters rejected an amendment declaring there's no right to abortion in the state constitution. So especially in the wake of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade and the collective outrage going on and the momentum behind these ballot initiatives, I think nothing is impossible. And I also think it'll be fascinating to see, you know, Florida is such a diverse and big state, so representative of the country in so many ways. It'll be fascinating to see how this plays out there. Lots to talk about. Florida is one of a dozen states that have abortion rights initiatives on the ballot or in the process of qualifying to get enough signatures. Arizona is one of them. There are a lot of obstacles to getting this initiative before the voters in Florida, but the group organizing it, Floridians Protecting Freedom, has already done quite a bit. What have they accomplished so far? 
Florida has so many hurdles that have to be cleared in order to get a measure on the ballot. They had to gather and verify almost 900,000 signatures from at least half of the state's 28 congressional districts. And they blew past even their own expectations, I think, on that one. They verified close to a million signatures. And then, of course, they've got, you know, the the DeSantis administration and anti-abortion state officials, including Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody, who have been throwing up, you know, whatever obstacles they can scheme up to try to prevent this thing from getting on the ballot. Florida also has the highest threshold for citizen-initiated amendments in the country, which means that in order to pass this amendment, if it makes it onto the ballot, is going to need more than 60 percent of votes. Let me just underline that. Majorities do not rule on Florida amendments. It takes a supermajority, 60%. This is what Ohio voters turned down. But Florida initiatives don't become law unless they get more than 60%. Which is hard, but not impossible. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. What do the polls say about support for abortion rights in Florida? So abortion is really popular, John. I mean, Lauren Brenzel, um, who is leading the campaign there in Florida, said that their polling so far is consistent with about a decade of research in Florida that shows 70% and upwards of Floridians support access to safe and legal abortion. So 70, let me emphasize that, not 50, not 60, 70% support. Abortion is popular, and the campaign is banking on it being popular among Republicans, being popular among unaffiliated voters, and we have seen that play out. I mean, I was on the ground reporting for The Nation in Kansas in the wake of the Dobbs decision when everyone was commenting on what a red state Kansas is. I mean, this is the home of George Tiller, the assassinated abortion provider. I mean, we knew the odds there, and yet... Kansas surprised everybody, except those of us who, who you know, have been chanting abortion is popular, you know, at Nazism and driving everyone crazy for years. And Florida does have a history of passing progressive ballot measures, you know, for example, in 2020, making that 60%, they got close to 61% of Floridians voting in favor of a ballot initiative to raise the minimum wage. And so this is not impossible. Although, as you point out, you know, Ohio tried to do this. Abortion opponents in Ohio tried to raise their threshold in order to stop the abortion rights ballot initiative from from passing there. Um, and, and Florida's already got that threshold. So yes, a steep climb. The groups that organize abortion rights initiatives, Florida and everywhere else, are very much aware of the legal obstacles to qualifying, and they have recruited the best and brightest legal experts to draft language for the initiative that anticipates the possible objections that anti-abortion officials will make when these things go before the state Supreme Court. So I want to look exactly at the language of the Florida initiative which I'm sure the best and the brightest legal minds went into drafting. What exactly does the initiative say? The ballot summary that voters are going to see when they head into the ballot box, assuming that this clears you know, the Florida Supreme Court and makes it onto the ballot in November, says, no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's health care provider. This amendment does not change the legislature's constitutional authority to require notification to a parent or guardian before a minor has an abortion. So that last part has been controversial within the abortion rights movement. 
That's right. I mean, there's two parts that have been controversial within the abortion rights movement. One is obviously this is not trying to repeal Florida's existing requirement that minors seeking an abortion need to notify a parent or guardian first. It also has language around viability. Critics who I've talked to within the reproductive health and rights movement say, why are we reviving the ghost of Roe v. Wade, right? This is a, a standard that was in place where abortion states could ban abortion after viability. And this can lead to deeper stigmatization of abortions that take place later in pregnancy. And this question over whether to include this major concession around allowing abortion bans after viability has really divided the movement in a lot of these states where ballot initiatives are being considered, because there are people who say, you know, Roe is gone. We need to start over with a sweeping framework that includes everybody and doesn't leave people behind, including the women of color, the young people who are more likely to, to be pushed later into pregnancy and need an abortion post-viability. And then there's people who say, look, this is Florida or this is Missouri or, you know, we've got a steep hill to climb here and we've got to, you know, find something that we think has a higher chance of of winning Republican voters and making it through a very, you know, conservative state Supreme Court. But it forces abortion rights lawyers into this really strange position of having to talk about how important and significant and and ironclad viability is when, you know, people within the movement would say it's it's more of a legal standard than actually a medically solid one. Now this is being this has just been argued before the state Supreme Court and the opponents of this led by, as you say, the state attorney general. What was their, the heart of their argument about why this should be ruled off the ballot? So their argument is that the language that voters were going to see on the ballot was misleading. And, you know, this sort of felt like they were trying to come up with an argument. And they had a lot on their side, even with an argument that seemed pretty tenuous, which is because of the composition of the Florida Supreme Court, right? So five of the seven members who heard this case were appointed by Ron DeSantis. A sixth one is married to a co-author of Florida's six-week abortion ban, which is not currently in effect, um, but could come into effect. Um, depending on what that very same Florida State Supreme Court rules. Um, and so the odds were definitely not, you know, in favor of abortion rights, just based sheerly on the composition of that court. And yet when the court heard the Florida Attorney General's claims about the ballot summary being misleading um, during a hearing on February 7th, it actually went surprisingly well. And that was kind of a nice surprise, I think, for um, the abortion rights supporters in Florida. Um, Chief Justice Carlos Muniz, who's a DeSantis appointee, um, he you know, had led a private courthouse tour for abortion opponents in 2022. Even he seemed skeptical of this argument that the summary was somehow misleading. And he said, the people of Florida aren't stupid. They can figure this out. <laughs> so when will we hear from the Florida State Supreme Court about whether the people in Florida get to vote on abortion rights? So they need to rule by April 1st. Um, so that is when we will know for sure if this initiative has cleared the Florida Supreme Court and will make it to the ballot in November. Now let's assume that it does make it to the ballot. We have to talk about Latinos in Florida, a quarter of the state's population. We are told that Latinos are moving right, that Latinos are becoming Trump supporters, especially Latino men, especially in Florida. What can you tell us about Latino voters in Florida and abortion rights? 
Well, I can tell you that at least one organizer that I talked to, Andrea Mercado, is out to prove you wrong on that point. <laughs> okay. um, she believes that, you know, Latinos, first of all, are a very diverse population in Florida. The demographics have been changing. So she is confident that Latina women especially are going to have their chance to show that they're quite progressive on the abortion rights measure. She pointed out that her mom had uh, made a donation to the campaign. (laughs) And, you know, I think it's going to be, you know, they are, the campaign is gearing up to have a Spanish language arm to really find messaging that's going to work in in the diversity of Latino communities that they have all across the state. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this ends up changing who shows up. Because of course, it's not just about who lives in Florida. It's about who decides that they care enough to show up and vote on election day. Since that Supreme Court hearing, the Alabama State Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are human beings. Does this have any effect, any implications for the Florida initiative? When when I watched this Florida Supreme Court hearing on the ballot amendment, there was this curveball that the chief justice, Carlos Muniz, came up with where he started asking about personhood. Now, personhood is the holy grail of the anti-abortion movement. It has been always, right? They want to have embryos from the moment of fertilization declared to be human beings with equal rights. This would be catastrophic, of course, for IVF, for birth control, for, you know, anyone who's pregnant and and that pregnancy doesn't continue. It's a very sweeping paradigm. It's always been the end goal. And so it was kind of a head scratcher why the chief justice was bringing this up in a hearing that really didn't seem to have anything to do with that. And even the attorney who was making the anti-abortion argument against this amendment for the state was completely caught off guard when Carlos Muniz started asking questions about whether the Florida Constitution protects fetal personhood. And he said, like, uh, to be honest, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> you know, I'm not I don't really know, you know. And then two days later, Liberty Council, which is a conservative uh, anti-abortion um, organization that's been working with the state of Florida on this, followed up with a briefing saying, hey, we took a look and here's all the sections of Florida law that we think mention legal protection for an unborn child or an unborn person. So they were sort of teeing up this idea that the embry- that embryos and fetuses are people under the state constitution institution, which would set up a really historic showdown, right? If if we have an amendment that passes, it clears all the hurdles and passes, and the Florida Constitution then protects abortion rights. And then we also have a state Supreme Court that seems interested in the argument that the Constitution also protects the personhood of embryos or fetuses. It makes you sort of wonder, like, whether there was some, I don't know, communication here between the, you know, court in Alabama and the one in Florida. But we have this court decision out of Alabama where they're saying that embryos, that frozen embryos are people, are human beings, and and really, you know, catering to that personhood argument. And of course, then Liberty Council took the opportunity once that Alabama decision had come down to submit another follow-up briefing to the Florida Supreme Court saying, hey, take a look at this Alabama ruling. This sort of seems like what Chief Justice Muniz was talking about. And isn't this interesting? We can use this as a precedent now to argue that the the proposed amendment in Florida is actually a no-go. And so, so it's really important to look at how these different arguments are building towards um, fetal personhood, which again, has always been the end game. And of course, in the meantime, it has to be said, you know, I I really feel for IVF patients in Alabama right now, because this has been 
extremely distressing for people who want to be pregnant and are going through the process of IVF, which can be very invasive and distressing. And and now they've been thrown into this total um, confusion and limbo while everyone figures out whether IVF can continue in the state. We have to talk about Trump for just a minute. Trump has carefully... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just a minute. (laughs) Trump has carefully avoided taking a position on abortion because he wants to get elected and he knows how unpopular it is. Florida has a 15-week abortion ban right now. Lots of other states also have 15 weeks. Uh, We are told that Trump is likely to endorse a 16-week ban. Uh, Maybe I missed something, but... Has 16 weeks been a, a, an issue uh, for the anti-abortion no, movement? No, John, no. I, I, As far as I can tell, it, Trump just made this up. I mean, I have been, I, I've talked to anti-abortion activists. Uh, I have never heard anyone in the anti-abortion movement say, you know, what we really need is a 16-week abortion ban. I mean, this is so strange because it satisfies no one. It's definitely not far enough for anti-abortion activists. It's too far for abortion rights activists who are saying, um, hello, you know, we're going to go to the ballot and we have we think we have a majority of population even in, you know, red and purple states that are going to support us. So I, I I assume he's got some idea of what he's doing here. But, you know, it's such an opportunity to just say all of these gestational age bans are so arbitrary. Right. I mean, I guess there's no reason why 16 weeks makes any less sense than 15. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, here we are. A couple other things about Florida in November that may give us uh, hope. One is that a marijuana legalization initiative has qualified with enough signatures for the ballot. In other states and cities, that has really significantly boosted turnout of young people significantly. And finally, Taylor Swift has three concerts in Miami just weeks before election day. I wonder if you have any comment on that. Oh, I'm so glad, John. This is just, this is a career milestone for me because I I guess I'm coming out for the first time to the nation audience as a Swifty. And, <laughs> um, and I'm just delighted that someone's asked me a question about, about Taylor Swift. Um, she's got a song called Florida on her, you know, very closely watched upcoming album. She's got concerts scheduled in Miami. Uh, people are wondering, you know, has she got something planned that's going to help try to tip the scales in Florida? Um, and I, you know what? I believe in the power of abortion. I also believe in the power of Taylor Swift, John. So <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not counting anything out right now in Florida. Taylor Swift's song Florida has not been released yet. By any chance, have you heard it? No, John. And if you've heard it and you haven't shared it with me, I would be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the release of that album, just like everybody else. Amy Littlefield, you can read her report, Will a Florida Ballot Measure to Protect Abortion Shake Up the State's Politics This November? It's at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. This was great. Thank you so much, Sean. It's a pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left.
Now it's time to talk about a new podcast, Blind Spot: The Plague in the Shadows. Stories from the early days of HIV and AIDS about how the epidemic decimated poor communities of color. And it's also about the people who refused to stay out of sight. For that, we turn to Kai Wright and Lizzie Ratner. Kai is host and managing editor of the weekly NPR show, Notes from America with Kai Wright. He's also, among other things, a former editor at The Nation and a frequent guest on this podcast a couple of years ago. Kai, it's great to have you back on the show. Glad to be here, John. And Lizzie Ratner is the lead reporter on Blind Spot, also deputy print editor at The Nation magazine, where she edits articles on social and economic justice. Hi, Lizzie. Hello, John. It is so wonderful to be here. And we should say their podcast, Blind Spot, is a co-production of the History Channel and WNYC Studios in collaboration with The Nation magazine. The podcast takes us back to New York City in the early 80s when AIDS hit the city like a pandemic. People were scared. They didn't know what the disease was or how you could get it. Kai, let's start with the title, Blind Spot. Explain that. It's part of a series. Uh, the, the Blind Spot series looks back at episodes in our history where there was something missing that we did not see. And if we had seen it, things would have been different. And so previous seasons dealt with 9-11 and the Tulsa massacre of 1921. And this year, this season, we decided to turn back to the early days of the AIDS epidemic and say, what didn't we notice or what did we choose not to notice? I think that's an important distinction in this season of Blind Spot is these were very active choices as a society that we made not to pay attention to things that both caused disease and that and that allowed it to spread um, and continue for 40 years and to, to on to this day. Your podcast is mostly not about the experts. Yes, you have Dr. Fauci but you feature the voices of people we usually don't hear from on the radio or see on TV. It's those voices that make Blind Spot so good. Lizzie, tell us about Valerie, who was living in a tight-knit working-class Puerto Rican community on the Lower East Side. How many people did she tell you died of AIDS on her block? Yeah, Valerie is this absolutely remarkable, just fantastic human being um, who grew up on New York's Lower East Side and is now an organizer for a really wonderful group called Housing Works. And when she was, you know, starting in her late teens, which was in the early 1980s, she started to see people on her block on the Lower East Side just disappear. Um, and I should say that the Lower East Side had been probably the city's, New York City's largest open air drug market, specifically heroin. And so she started seeing people who were heroin users just become thin and waste away and disappear. And she'd later find out that this was AIDS. And when I asked her to your question, how many people on her block actually disappeared? She was just like, oh, I think 75. I counted <laughs> once, she said, 75. Unbelievable. And that blew me away. I mean, I was, I mean, 10 would have shocked me. Honestly, 10 would have shocked me. Um, and she said 75, which is Proceeded really- Proceeded to list the names, you know, yeah. this person and this person and this person. It's really one of many powerful moments um, in hearing from folks. Um, just the fact that she literally could list those names to you, Lizzie, it's, that's also ripping from the early eighties. 
Valerie told an amazing story about going to the doctor and asking to be tested for AIDS. She'd had too many infections and she knew by this time what that probably meant, but the doctor didn't want to. And she recalls saying, just test me, please, just give me the damn test. Why that reluctance on the part of the doctor? This was common at the time and uh, the reason is that she was a woman. And women were largely overlooked during the early days of the HIV and AIDS crisis, in part because um, there were actually, you know, there were so many gay men, so many men, so many gay men who were getting sick, but also because homophobia sort of pigeonholed HIV as a quote unquote gay disease. The whole idea of the illness was predicated, predicated on this notion. And so from the medical establishment to the government onto the general public, there was this idea that, yeah, women weren't a part of the epidemic. They couldn't get it. You couldn't get it through vaginal sex. You couldn't get it. As Lizzie points out, in, and this is some incredible reporting that you did, Lizzie, but as she points out, it's not just that she was a woman. It's what kind of woman she was. She was a, a woman of color living in a poor neighborhood and of a group of people that we had decided as a society we don't care what happens to you. And so they weren't looking. And so, yes, there was the feedback loop that had been created around the idea that that this was only about not just gay men, but a very particular kind of gay man. Um, and that crowded out other things. But it also was because we did not want to look at other populations of people who were getting it. And, and I think one of the most inspiring things that we talk about in this series is the way in which that very particular group of people insisted upon their, their existence. And Lizzie tells the story beautifully of how, as a consequence, these women, organizing in part from prison, managed to change the very definition of what AIDS is. And uh, I think it's one of the most remarkable parts of the epidemic story. Yeah, the most amazing thing about Valerie is that after she got that test and after the results were positive, she didn't consider it to be a death sentence. This was 1989. What did she say she did with the virus? <laughs> she talked to it. She sat it down and she talked. Valerie said, come here, virus. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a talk. We're going to learn to coexist. You need me. I need <laughs> to get along with you. You're not going to kill me because if you kill me, you die too. So we're going to coexist. And so she decided to fight. And she had a lot of help fighting, I should say. You know, she she hooked up with this group, Housing Works, I mentioned, and she became an activist. Um, she became an activist for women. She became an activist for drug users. She became an activist for poor Black and brown people. And she is still fighting today. AIDS hit around the time Reagan declared it was morning in America. Kai, let's talk a little about the political context in which yeah. AIDS emerged. I think it's really notable, you know, I mean, that this epidemic emerges, this virus emerges in the United States at a time when whatever we think of Ronald Reagan, he had really tapped into a desire to turn the page from all of the struggle and the fighting of the 60s and the 70s around race, around gender, around poverty. It was a moment where there was an enormous amount of consensus in the United States. Even for people, I mean, when you look back at the polling, it's even for people that, that are known to have hated Ronald Reagan. I mean, the Black community, it's true. Latino community, it's true. Progressives, it's true. Like there was a, a, a desire for optimism. And that optimism was blinding. 
because it was rooted not in a success of having conquered the things that we had been fighting about and working on. Uh, it was rooted in exhaustion with them. And so the problem remained. We just chose not to talk about poverty or drug use or inequality or any of those things anymore. And it's really, it really is throughout society. I mean, we can blame Reagan and we should, but like even in the gay community, um, this was morning in America in many different gay communities amongst black gay men, amongst the gay community broadly. This was a moment in the late seventies and early eighties where we were saying, you know what? To hell with this. We're going to build our own stuff. We're not going to look back anymore. We're going to have a good time. We are going to, we are going to be prosperous and successful um, and happy, just like everybody else. And um, and along comes this virus that is like, well, I got another story for you, and nobody wants it. Nobody wants to hear it. And that took a long time to shake. The geography of AIDS is part of the story here. Gay life in America in the early 80s, of course, was centered in the West Village in Manhattan and the Castro in San Francisco. Uh, I, I learned from your podcast about Washington, D.C., yeah. Black America's capital city and the capital <laughs> of gay Black America. And that meant AIDS in D.C. has a different story than it had in Manhattan or San Francisco. Well, I mean, I'd say AIDS in Black communities had a different story than it had in, and that was true everywhere, um, than it had in white gay communities. And what's notable about D.C. is that it was a location where um, there had been this burgeoning Black gay movement, really starting as a cultural movement um, in arts and culture and poetry, people like Essex Hemphill, and um, we would come to know Marlon Riggs and Joseph Beam, all of whom are dead. And they had started to build an activism around Black-specific civil, gay civil rights issues because, you know, the gay community was no different than the rest of America in its segregation and its racism that defined it. So these uh, Black queer people were building a movement similarly at a time when um, this epidemic emerged. And, and they amongst them, you know, struggled to make contact with it at first. You know, a lot of those people said, no, this isn't a, that's a, they believed the message they were getting that this is a, this is an epidemic that is about a certain kind of white gay man in, in New York and San Francisco and LA. And that ain't me. So I don't have to worry about it. Um, and that doesn't have to interrupt the fact that like Greta Scott King is returning our calls and, you know, we're making progress. Uh, and it would take some a few more years before into the late 80s before that part of the community really made contact with it which became pivotal because you know by that point 40% of the epidemic was black or latino um overwhelmingly um women poor women like Valerie and black gay men um and so it was there when it was their activism that began in the late 80s that then defines much of the rest of still today of the history of this epidemic also loved the story of the incarcerated women at the maximum security prison in upstate New York, Bedford Hills. Only time I ever heard of it was because Kathy Boudin was, was at <laughs> Bedford Hills. But there's a lot of other interesting stories and people. For instance, Katrina Haslip. Yeah, uh, Katrina was a an absolutely brilliant, charismatic woman who was incarcerated at Bedford Hills in 1985. And it's important to point out she was actually incarcerated with Kathy Boudin and with Judy Clark. And it is because of the friendship she struck up with them, not because, but it is in part through the friendship she struck up with them 
that she and they became these activists within the prison for AIDS education and counseling and consciousness raising and peer support. So in the mid eighties, when all three of them are in the prison, all of a sudden AIDS is appearing among women in the prison in significant numbers. I mean, HIV in the prison at that point or AIDS in the prison by like 1987 was higher for women in prisons than for men in prisons. And there's fear, there's terror, there is anger. And Katrina, along with Kathy and Judy and remarkable other women founded this organization called ACE or AIDS Counseling and Education, which would become possibly the first, certainly one of the first AIDS organizations for women in the entire country. It was in a prison. They pioneered this. They understood that women needed to get together, not just women, but people, and claim control of this illness and claim the narrative and teach each other and advocate for each other. And ACE continued for many years and uh, it continued after Katrina left in 1990. And when she left, she decided very deliberately that she was gonna take what she had learned and take the voice that she had built in prison out into the world and use that voice to advocate for women who are incarcerated and more specifically for black women and brown women with HIV. And she fought valiantly in one of the most important fights for women with HIV in this country's history, which was the fight to change the definition of AIDS. In Blindspot, you take us to places we usually don't see or, or hear about. One of the most intense and, and heartbreaking is the pediatric AIDS ward at Harlem Hospital. The story is this, um, starting in the early 1980s, children begun showing, begin showing up on hospital wards, mostly the wards of public hospitals throughout New York City. Um, not in huge numbers, but numbers that were significant enough. And they have a bunch of really unusual symptoms that mirror the symptoms that are appearing among gay men. Ultimately, it's figured out or it's discovered that these children have AIDS. Uh, they sort of got caught in this moment of collapse in New York City. When you had the aftermath of the fiscal crisis, the beginning of the austerity era, and uh, sort of a significant drug crisis, coupled finally with a foster care system that starts removing children uh, from parents or mothers who have any signs of drugs in their system. So what does this all add up to? You get a bunch of children who are coming to these hospital wards, Harlem Hospital, for example. They're incredibly sick. There is no treatment for AIDS at this point. Their mothers are often incredibly sick. They're dying. Some of them have died or the children have been removed from their mothers because their mothers were drug users and the foster care system said, we need to take these children from their mothers. And so you have this situation where these children are in hospital wards, really sick, sometimes dying, and there is no family for them at all. And uh, because they're so sick, they can't, you know, the foster care system has a hard time placing them with other families. And so the children become wards of the state who live out their lives on these hospital wards. And it's not one child. It is not dozens of children. Over the course of years, it ends up being several hundred children. Mm -hmm. Harlem Hospital was probably the place that had the largest number of these children, but there were other hospitals in the city that did. There are a number of reasons that Harlem Hospital became the site of it, but one was that Harlem was the epicenter or the site of probably some of the highest rates of mother-to-child transmission of HIV, not only in New York City, but the whole country. And so it's this incredibly grim and frankly, you know, Dickensian situation. It's horrifying. This underfunded hospital where they don't even have enough money to buy Robitussin 
is charged suddenly with being the home for these children. And what we talk about in our episode is the way that this, this community of doctors and nurses and social workers and ultimately volunteers comes together to try to provide some sort of family and home for these children. And um, the stories are heartbreaking. And yet some of them are actually funny. Some of them are touching. Some of them are inspiring. Two of the nurses we feature, Monica Freer, I mean, sorry, Maxine Freer and Monica DeGrado, they're best friends. And so sometimes I mix up their names. Um, They really were insistent that when we made this episode, we not only talk about the horror and the pain and the fact that they would sort of go home on Friday nights and break down and cry, but the fact that there was love, that there was community, that there was laughter, that there were wild times. And I think that is, to me, what makes the story particularly compelling. And I, I have to add that, I mean, for me, on that that note, in every single episode and in all of this history and in all of my time covering the epidemic, the thing that recurs is these examples of individual human beings who stepped up leading with love when institutions were failing. And I think in remembering our movements and remembering our very important social movements, including AIDS, but many others, we privileged thinking about the civil disobedience and the shaking our fist at power and all of that, which is hugely, obviously, deeply important and often male. And um, we tend to write out the mutual aid and the caretaking and all the things that really are some of the most radical acts. And that is what I, one of the main things I hope people will take from this podcast is, um, is that part of the history of AIDS um, and the pediatric ward of Harlem hospital, you know, is exhibit A. Blind Spot is the new podcast about the early days of HIV and AIDS, the story of how the epidemic decimated poor communities of color, and it's also about the people who refuse to stay out of sight. Hosted by Kai Wright with Lizzie Ratner, a co-production of the History Channel and WNYC Studios in collaboration with The Nation magazine. Six episodes. Subscribe to Blind Spots at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Kai Wright and Lizzie Ratner, Thank you for this season's Blind Spot podcast. It's intense. It's amazing. And thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having us, John. Thank you so much, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Long before the Sacklers appeared on the scene, making billions by selling opiates to Americans, families like the Astors, the Peabodys, and the Cabots cemented their wealth and status through the 19th century global trade in opium. For that story, we turn to Amitav Ghosh. He's the author of many works of fiction and nonfiction including the best-selling Ibis trilogy, Sea of Poppies, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, River of Smoke and Flood of Fire. He's also well known for his writing on climate, 
especially the great derangement climate change and the unthinkable. His work has been translated into more than 30 languages. His essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New Republic, and The New York Times. He holds two Lifetime Achievement Awards and five honorary doctorates. And he has the cover story in the current issue of The Nation magazine, The Blue Blood Families That Made Fortunes in the Opium Trade. It's an excerpt from his new book, Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories. We reached him today in Brooklyn. Amitav Ghosh, welcome to the program. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, we've learned a lot in the last decade about elite American families whose wealth was based on the slave trade. And of course, over the last couple of years, we've learned how the Sackler family made something like $10 billion from Purdue Pharmaceuticals selling OxyContin. But I always thought the opium trade of the 19th century was a, a British thing. The Opium Wars, I learned about them in high school. The British forced the Chinese not to ban opium. Uh, they forced the Chinese government to allow Britain to sell opium to the Chinese people. But in your cover story for The Nation this month, you show that it wasn't just the Brits uh, who were getting rich by selling opium to the Chinese. It was also the Americans, some Americans. Uh, this has politely been called the China trade, a great euphemism. In fact, the China trade was a huge part of the early economy of the United States. Everybody learns in high school about the Boston Tea Party that started the American Revolution. But where did that tea come from? And why was it tea that started the American drive toward independence? Tea was an enormously important commodity for the British Empire. Taxes on tea were Britain's second largest source of revenue. Uh, it paid for almost everything, uh, all state expenditure apart from defense. So tea was enormously important for uh, the British, and it was a monopoly. It was a monopoly of the East India Company. Tea was sold also under the aegis of the East India Company in, uh, in America. And it, uh, tea was uh, something that Americans uh, were taking to in the 18th century, sort of in imitation of the British. But uh, it was sold in America uh, with a huge markup. And because it was a monopoly, Americans were not allowed to trade with China directly. So this was a this was a big grievance. You know, it was a part of the whole sort of no taxation without representation uh, conception. You know, why should Americans be shut out of this trade? So uh, in 1783, once uh, America became independent, suddenly it's surrounded by British colonies on all sides, and it has really no one to trade trade with because it's shut out of all these other, out of the trade with all the, all the British colonies. So at this point, China becomes a lifeline uh, for, for America because uh, this is a country uh, which is trading freely with many parts of the world. So the first uh, American ship to leave uh, for China actually departs in 1783, and it makes a very handsome profit, 25% over investment. And after that, that starts, you know, a sort of whole wave of American trade with China. So the Americans bought tea from China, but what could they offer in exchange? What did the Chinese want from their trading partners? The problem for the, the Americans, as it had been for the British, was that they had nothing to offer to the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese could make everything that, you know, um, they had to offer. They had to find some other commodity to trade with China. 
And what the British had done in the 18th century is that they had transformed a very small trade in medicinal opium from India to China. They had taken that and they had transformed that into a huge sort of trade in uh, trade in narcotics. Uh, they were ba- basically just uh, sort of pushing this drug towards China. I mean, just like the Sacklers did uh, in America uh, in the 1990s. And the market grew itself. Once the Americans saw that uh, they really needed to get into the opium trade if they were going to have any kind of uh, uh, toehold in the China trade, uh, they were actually very interested. One other big question. Where did the Americans get the opium they sold in China? First of all, they discovered a new source of opium, which was Turkey, and they established uh, complete uh, control, uh, monopoly over over the Turkish opium trade. Uh, they basically pioneered that entire new route of um, of the opium trade from Turkey to China. After a while, uh, they they also discovered that the Turkish trade couldn't really produce enough opium uh, to uh, for their needs. So then, after the after the War of eighteen twelve in eighteen fifteen, they were finally allowed to sort of uh, open their trading outposts in India. And then they started trading in Indian opium as well. So they made uh, enormous fortunes out of, uh, you know, taking uh, opium from uh, Asia to China. Well, I've heard of the Boston Brahmins, but I never heard of the Boston Concern. I learned from your uh, piece in The Nation, this was the single biggest opium trading network in China and was the basis of the wealth that created the Boston Brahmins, America's closest equivalent to an aristocracy. Tell us about the Boston Concern, and and let's name some of the names of the families that were involved, and let's start with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I never wondered, well, where does the Delano come from? I learned from your piece in The Nation where the name Delano comes from. Please, please explain. Delano's are a very old American family. Uh, they didn't arrive uh, exactly on the Mayflower, but they arrived on the next uh, ship. And they were established very early uh, in uh, uh, in New England. And they were a very distinguished family, mainly of uh, shipbuilders. Amasa Delano uh, was one member of the family. Amasa Delano spent uh, quite a lot of time in China. He was the guy who wrote the journal on which uh, Melville based his story, Benito Sereno. I mean, it's actually based on a real incident, and uh, Amasa Delano was the one who wrote it. So Amasa Delano was one of those early uh, early traders with China who was always trying to find uh, goods to trade with China. So for a while, it was like sea cucumbers and furs and so on. Uh, so he wasn't directly involved in the open trade himself. But then uh, later generations of the Delanos uh, really plunged into uh, this business. And one of them was Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt's grandfather. And he was actually one of the biggest uh, American traders in uh, opium traders in China in the mid uh, in the 1830s. And then he returned there in the 1850s after he'd lost a part of his fortune. And then he made another fortune in opium trading. So essentially, the Roosevelt money came from opium. And they were perfectly well aware of this because they sort of tried to uh, brush it under the rug, as it were. <laughs> you know, nothing that I'm telling you is new. It's uh, it's often mentioned in the New York Times, etc. So it's just something that people prefer to forget. Another family name involved in opium, Brown. Isn't that the name of an Ivy League university in Rhode Island? 
Yes, yes. It, they have a little plaque up there saying, you know, he made his uh, money in, uh, they mentioned the slave trade, and then they say China trade. And the China trade is, as you said, uh, you know, it's just a euphemism for trading in opium. Uh, yeah, and, uh, that was the money with which they founded Brown University. Actually, Providence was one great center for trade uh, with China, in other words, for trading in opium. All of this is well known. The Brown family's uh, house is filled with chinoiserie of various kinds. All these, um, all these old families, they brought back enormous collections of Chinese porcelain. Another name, Cabot. There's a famous line that in Boston, the Lowells talk only to Cabots and the Cabots talk only to God. There's a Cabot house at Harvard. There's Henry Cabot Lodge. He was a Massachusetts senator. He was the vice presidential running mate of Richard Nixon in 1960 when he ran against Kennedy. Uh, a Cabot married Theodore Roosevelt. What did the Cabots do in China? The Cabots were, again, another uh, sort of maritime family. So they had members of the, uh, of the family uh, basically working as captains, sea captains, the transporting opium to China. All those families were, were very intimately connected. The Sturgises, the Russells, Perkinses. So, I mean, these families basically just married each other. And they became like, as I say in the book, they were like a sort of caste. So calling them uh, Boston Brahmins is uh, completely appropriate, I think. Uh, you know, uh, here in Brooklyn, where I live, on Pierpont Street in Brooklyn Heights, and that was where one of the biggest opium merchants lived. His name was Abil Abbott Lowe. Uh, his grandson became, uh, rather his son uh, became, uh, you know, mayor of New York and then president of Columbia University. And he gave Columbia University its most famous iconic building called, uh, it's called the Lowe Library. I'm sure you've seen it. And Lowe Library was named after Abil Abbott Lowe, you know, this big opium trader. And, you know, at Columbia, even they had kind of forgotten this. They invited me to come and talk about that connection. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's interesting that, as you say, none of this was a secret. Uh, you didn't have to do the primary research in all of this. There's long family biographies of, of all of these families. If you look them up at Wikipedia, there's many entries, but they all use that phrase, the 19th century China trade. The opium angle doesn't really come into the Wikipedia stories, so I want to give you the credit for bringing that part out. The Boston Brahmins and the America they built are thought to be exemplars of Puritan virtue. I guess it's time to change our thinking about that. It's a very curious thing because they were actually very puritanical, you know, and uh, once they started going into other industries and businesses, they were very rigidly ethical in their, in their forms of uh, business and so on. But uh, all, their, all their money, essentially all their seed capital came from this completely criminal trade. I mean, this trade was absolutely criminalized in China going back to 1729. So they all knew that they were, what they were doing was a criminal activity and they always hid it. How were they able to get away with it? The reason that they got away with it is I think you have to remember that at this, uh, at this moment in time, the early 19th century, uh, this was a time when slavery existed in the South. It was a time when, you know, there were wars of extermination against Native Americans. Many of these men, their families had uh, been involved in uh, wars of extermination in the Northeast. So I guess, uh, you know, at that point, uh, their idea that 
it, it maybe didn't seem such a big deal to them simply because uh, of a certain kind of racial thinking. This was bringing, uh, you know, incredible harm to Chinese people far away. But, uh, you know, they would, uh, they would just excuse themselves by saying, oh, well, they're just uh, Orientals and degenerates and so on. You know, that, that long train of uh, racial thought. And the weird thing, actually, is that China had no history of opium at all. This was one of the reasons why China became so vulnerable, in fact, uh, um, to opium. For them, opium was something completely new. They thought of it as a foreign Western thing. And it, uh, they conceived of it as part of their encounter with the West. And, uh, you know, that was what led to, the, uh, to a century of incredible disruption. The New York Times a book review piece about your new book concluded that you tell the story of the opium trade as part of the long history of racial capitalism. Is that the way you think about it? So yes, I don't know how to think about it in any other way. You know, even if you look at the structuring of the trade, uh, uh, in at least the trade in Eastern India under the auspices of the East India Company, it was completely racialized, you know. I mean, uh, the Indians uh, were the peasants, and sometimes, uh, you know, the low-level, uh, the low-level businessmen involved in it. Uh, but uh, the East India Company's auctions were very much uh, limited uh, to certain groups, uh, most of whom uh, were white or white adjacent, as they were thought of. I think it was very much a, a racialized form of trade. There's no way of getting about it. And certainly, you know, if you consider the Boston Concern, uh, which was their name for their interconnected group of companies, they were all very, very tight-knit. Uh, I mean, they would never have let in, uh, you know, a black man or even a Jew, for that matter, you know. The cover story in the February issue of The Nation is an excerpt from your new book called Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories. Tell us a little more about what else is in this book. A lot of it is about uh, a cultural encounter, you know, that actually took place in Guangzhou, and that was incredibly productive for the whole world. So it's not all a story of horror, I mean, you know. But this was an incredibly uh, productive encounter, most of all because it led to an enormous botanical exchange. Guangzhou was famous for its uh, nurseries and its flowers. And uh, in this period, uh, the early 19th century, uh, before 1830, Kew Gardens actually set up a sort of, a sort of trade in plants. Sir Joseph Banks, who was then uh, president, uh, who was the director of uh, Kew Gardens and, and the founding member, so to speak, uh, he was a, he understood very well that China had an enormous wealth of botanical riches. His, uh, his people in Guangzhou uh, sent a lot of flowers and other plants uh, back to England. They're still there at Kew Gardens. In fact, I was there uh, last week, uh, you know, examining their collections and talking to them about it. And uh, so as a result, you know, a very large percentage of your uh, of your flowering plants in the US and in Europe, are actually Chinese. I mean, the list would go on forever, but hydrangeas are a very good example. I mean, there's a hydrangea in almost every American garden, as far as I can see. Uh, that's Chinese. Uh, but uh, I think my personal favorites are two. I love the peonies. Well, with peonies, everyone knows that they're, that they're Chinese. But the other uh, flower, which you see everywhere in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, is, uh, the, is wisteria. And wisteria also came through Guangzhou. 
Uh, yes, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, the great Wisteria city is Venice, you know, I mean, May, June in Venice, it's just waterfalls of Wisteria everywhere. And that wouldn't have happened without this encounter with, uh, with China. Amitav Ghosh, his report, The Blue Blood Families That Made Fortunes in the Opium Trade, is the cover story in The Nation magazine this month. You can read it online at thenation.com. It's an excerpt from his new book, Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories. Amitav Ghosh, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you very much indeed for having me. That's it for Living in the USA for today. Our producer and social media maven is Renee Reynolds. Our audio editor is Alan Minsky. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at applepodcast.com, Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music